flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see the thing that, ha that, the thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which they were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. I'll pray. Lord, I thank you again for this marvelous gift, God, that's beyond um, description, beyond our comprehension, really, of what you've done in sending your Son into this world, that God became man, took on humanity, that you might live, Lord, our life as you intended for men to live, and give yourself for us that our sin would be truly removed. Thank you, God, for this great gift, matchless gift, and the grace that has been bestowed upon us. We ask that you would just again strengthen our hearts, our faith, Lord, as we look at your word and think on Jesus who gave himself for us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, reading this passage, and I'm, I'm maybe trying to endeavor to do too much um, before Christmas. I'm, this mic's not on? Sorry, I thought it was. Now I'm on? Okay. All right. Sorry. Um, but I wanted to just bring together some things, namely here, Christmas. Um, not only is it a time of just really marveling at what God did in having his son become a man. And we, none of us, I would suspect, have, have not at some point in our lives, perhaps every Christmas, like our children, as they're staring at the nativity set with our grandkids, and we kind of are there as well. Just marveling at the wonder that God took on flesh and that he came into this world as a baby, helpless, innocent, completely dependent, and it's a marvelous thing that God has done. We would like to think that if we had been there, maybe if God had appealed, appeared to us like he did the shepherds, that we would have had the same response and just run eagerly to see this great thing that God has done. But it wasn't just a, a night of rejoicing, um, it was also a mixed time for Mary and for Joseph and for all that witnessed this. It was just shortly after this that they were in the temple for the dedication of the baby Jesus. 
And at that point, they were told, I'm looking over at the, at the second part of Luke chapter 2, um, and it says that, that Simeon came to them and said in verse 34, and blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Well, that was only a week after Christmas morning, as it were, where the angels come and say, we need to tell you what God has said. I'm sorry, the shepherds come and say, we need to tell you what, what God has told us through the angels. And they were rejoicing and they were pondering in it. And then a week later, Simeon says, there's going to be great pain to come to you through this child. Both things, great joy and great pain. We appreciate what the angels said when they said, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. That tells us that Jesus was not just given to some, but Jesus came giving himself for all. He is the gift of God to all mankind, to all humanity. Good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. But then he says concerning um, uh, when the, all the angels showed up and he says in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And there's a bit of a caveat there. Peace on earth, and Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But as though the angels start to give a hint, Jesus' coming is not peace for all men. He is good news for all men. He is a joy for all the world. But not all men are going to receive him, accept that gift that God has offered. Not all will experience the joy that they ought to experience and not all are going to know Jesus as their peace. So we sometimes struggle with if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and if He came that the, the on the, that He was sent that on the earth peace would be among men, then why isn't there peace among all men? But the verse doesn't say there will be peace among all men. Peace among men with whom He is pleased. And with whom is he pleased? Those who recognize Jesus and by faith receive him as the gift from God that he is. And when we receive God's gift of Jesus, God is pleased. We all give gifts. And one of the saddest things is to give a gift to someone that you love and for them not to receive the gift. Or perhaps to sell the gift, to give it away to somebody else. You go to that wedding shower and you see your gift being passed to someone else. Patsy's mom was one of the hardest people on the earth to give gifts to. She would say thank you and then she'd turn around and give it to somebody else. Jesus is the gift that God has given to this world. And those who receive that gift will know the peace of God because God is pleased that they have received what God has given. But not all the world receives the gift. 
And that is why we do not have peace in all the world today. And we never have since the day that Jesus entered this world as a baby. And that's why Simeon would say to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. So we get a lot of things right when we think about Christmas. It was, in fact, an amazing time. Angels and shepherds were there. There was, in fact, no room for them in the end. We get that correct. And we are correct when we say that Jesus was born into poverty. Mary and Joseph had no one with them, totally alone, no relative, first time birth for this young woman, and no mom, no sisters, no one with her to help her. And we have it right when we say that Jesus came to save us from our sins. But there are some things that we don't get quite right when we retell this story. We say that um, angels and shepherds were there, but we sometimes miss just how obscure of a thing this was. It was not being heralded. The world missed, for the most part, what was going on, and it was the way God intended. I remember attending and, and asking to speak at a funeral a number of years ago of a dear lady who... Um, suddenly, we think, had a heart attack and then crashed her car into another. And um, it all happened right out in front of the Christian school where she used to serve. And so she was taken earlier than anyone thought, and she was in, seemed to be in, the, in very good health. And so the, the funeral was just packed, uh, standing room only. But as significant as that was and a joy it was to her husband to have so many people come and, and, and be with him in his time of mourning, it occurred to me that it was still very understated. When a head of state passes away, there are processions and there is, there is media and there is, they lie in state for sometimes days, if not weeks at a time. But when a Christian passes away, it's very, very seldom is there anything like that in terms of recognition. And it is, is as God would have it. But I said in that funeral, I said, if, if, if people really understood the significance of this woman's life, all the cameras would be here. It would be written up in all the newspapers. It would be national news because one of God's has gone to be with him. There's never been a more significant person in the history of mankind to enter this world be born than Jesus Christ. And yet talk about being understated and underappreciated. There was just simply no fanfare other than the angels speaking to a few shepherds. There were no camels there, as we have in our nativity scene. Few cows, few sheep maybe, but there were no camels. There were no wise men there when Jesus was born. That was later that they showed up, up to two years later. As mentioned this morning in Sunday school class, there were probably more than three wise men, and they certainly did not come alone. They came with a whole entourage. They had a small armed force with them. They brought gifts, but they didn't come to give gifts. They came to worship. 
And we miss that sometimes, that they came and they bowed and they worshiped before this baby because they knew this was not just a baby. This was God. Jesus was not an infant when the wise men showed up. He was a toddler. And Jesus was not in a cave, in a stable, lying in a manger, but he was in a home. Not only was Jesus born into poverty, but he lived in poverty and he died in poverty. He had really nothing to his name his whole life. And though the birth of Jesus was a great privilege and honor to Mary and Joseph, it was also the greatest trial they ever endured. And nothing caused them greater pain than the privilege of being the parents of Jesus. The purpose of Jesus coming is what I really wanted to think about. They say that every person has to address three questions in the course of his life. We can ignore them, but even in ignoring them, we're in one way answering them. And those three questions would be, where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? We need to know the answer to those questions concerning the most significant person who, was ever, who ever lived, and that being Jesus. We know where he came from. Todd read it this morning in a scripture reading before the choir sang, is that he came from God. He is God. He came from God. We know where he is, that he has a, after his crucifixion, he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to be back with his father. But why was he here? Why did God send him? What was his purpose? I took some time just to read through the scripture on the various things that are said concerning why Jesus was here, what his purpose was. And I wanted to highlight these things because it occurred to me that most of these things, in one way or another, relate to us. And so if we can answer the question of why Jesus came, why he took on human flesh and became a man, what the purpose was of his life, we can answer the question of what the purpose is for our life as well. Jesus came to save the lost. John, I'm sorry, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That means that he also came to take away sins. 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He came to set the captive free. Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. He came to call sinners. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, Jesus said in Matthew 9.13. He came to give his life as a ransom, not to be served, but to serve. Matthew 20.28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now I want you just to think about these first few. There's a number of more that I want to go through here but how these things relate to us as well. Jesus' purpose, our purpose are not so different. I cannot save the lost, but I am here to be God's instrument to share Jesus with the lost that they might be saved. And in a sense, we can say, God used me to save that person. God did the saving, but he uses us. We can't take away someone's sin 
but we can forgive them. And in a real sense, there is a very practical way where a person sometimes experiences forgiveness with us before they feel or sense, know the forgiveness of God. I remember my mom one time, a man when we first moved to Bernie here who didn't know the Lord yet. And, and she, we'd gotten good friends with that family and she felt prompted of the Lord one time just to call up that man and say, I just want you to know that God loves you and we love you too. And God, he later testified how God used that to bring him to faith in Christ. Just to hear from another person, you are loved. I love you. We trust that that's what God uses as parents in the lives of our kids. When we hear, they hear us say, I love you. And Jesus loves you. I forgive you. And Jesus forgives you. Sometimes we don't experience the grace and forgiveness of God until we experience it from someone else. And God uses us in the lives of others to see their sins taken away and to see the captive set free. I received a Christmas letter, Patsy and I did, just last night. And in the Christmas letter, this um, review of this particular ministry um, in India... And the folks testified how they had an opportunity more than 25 years ago to see a Hindu businessman whose life was just totally consumed with alcohol. He'd done everything he could to be set free, and he just was never able to be free. And his life was just in a tailspin. He was destroying his life, everyone around him, because of his addiction. And out of desperation, he went to this Christian ministry in India. And God set him free. Didn't happen instantaneously over a six-month period of time. He came to know the Lord and became free from his alcoholism and spent the next 25 years seeing thousands of other people set free. Jesus came to set the captive free, and he uses us to do the same. He came to call sinners, not the righteous, and God will allow us to have that same ministry. He came to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many and surely God wants us to understand life is not about us. But we've been put on this planet as Jesus came into this world not to be served but to serve and to give our life as a ransom for many. We are not saving them, I understand that, but we give our lives for others that they might know the life of Jesus Christ. He came to die. John 12, 27, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus came to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world through his own substitutionary death on our behalf. He came to die. He came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. He came to glorify the Father. 
John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He came to make the Father known, to actually demonstrate, to display the Father. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He came to do the business of his Father, not his own will. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, each of these things, it occurs to me, are reflective of God's purpose for us. We think that we are here to be fulfilled. And God says, you're here to die daily. If you're to be my disciple, you will take up your cross and follow me. The cross being an instrument of death. To live, we enter into his death. Not only his death, but also his burial and his resurrection. And it is not a life of being of acquiring and attaining, but it's a life of dying to self. And remarkably, God uses us as lights in this world to push back against the darkness. We don't strive against the darkness. We live in the light as those who have become the light. And God uses us to destroy the works of the devil. We never will know until we stand before God of how much God used us to push back on the darkness. Kind of like that movie that we all like to watch this time of year. It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. And what's the message is that we will never know how God uses us as those who are the light of the world because Christ has made us to be that, to destroy the works of the devil in this world. We are here to glorify the Father. We are here to make the Father known. And we are here not to do our will, but to do His will. More purpose statements of why Jesus came. He came to bring light and to deliver from darkness. He came to testify of the truth. He came to preach the kingdom of God. He came to give life and to give it abundantly. In John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. But then this is where we often miss the point of Christ's coming. He came to bring a sword to the earth and not peace. Peace on earth to all those with whom God is pleased. But he came, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So that little, innocent, helpless baby is the most opposed and violently rejected person who has ever been born. He is not here to bring peace, but he is the lightning rod for people in their relationship with God. He is the one who cuts through all the deception, all the darkness, all the nonsense, and he tells us that there is no way to approach God except through himself. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through him. And that is not a message people typically want to hear. In our own families, we will find that people who, who are committed to each other, who love each other, and yet can be at war with each other over Jesus. In another place, in Luke 12, 49, it says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish that it were already kindled. Isn't that interesting? Came to cast fire upon the earth, came to bring judgment, and I wish it were already kindled. We should pray for peace. Paul exhorted us to pray that we would live peaceful lives before governors and rulers and all those who are in authority. Nothing wrong with desiring peace. But sometimes in our ambition and our, our just zeal that everything be right, we miss the will of God. And God's will is that there be a sword and that there be fire. So we live in this in-between time. We're on the one side, we go, God, we want our neighbors, we want our friends, we want our enemies to know the peace of God. We want them to come to truly know Jesus' life, the one who is the hope of the world, the joy of the world, the love of the world, that they would come to know Jesus as we know him. And it grieves us, God, when the world rejects the one that we know is life itself the one who is most precious to us that the world despises and rejects. It grieves us, O oh God. That's a good thing. And yet on the other side, we need to recognize that Jesus did not come to bring peace. And he himself said he came to cast fire upon the earth and he wishes that it were already kindled. The last purpose statement that I could find, and I'm sure there are others, I just didn't find them all, but it's from Acts 3.26. And Peter said, For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. These are all the different purpose statements for why Jesus came. And most of these, in one way or another, relate to you and I. Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Amen. He came into this world to set the captive free, to not to be served, but to serve. He came to die. He came to destroy the works of the devil, to glorify the Father, to make the Father known, to do the will of the Father, to bring light and deliver from darkness, to testify of the truth, to preach the kingdom of God, to give life abundantly, not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Not to bring peace, but a sword. And to turn each of us from our own wicked ways. In one way or another, it seems to me that every one of those things is why not only he came, but what he wants to do in you and me. Now there's something else. If I, I thought of another way that I could have preached this sermon this morning is to list off all the names of Jesus. And as we would go through that list of the names of Jesus, sometimes we sing about them, there's one name that we would not get, I'm guaranteed. 
And that is the name leper. Leper. Do you know that? Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten of God and afflicted. We love Isaiah 53. It's one of our favorite portions of Scripture where it talks about all that Jesus came to do and how he took our iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but he has placed our iniquity on himself, taken our iniquity, that he was bruised and he was afflicted for our sake, smitten of God and afflicted. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and chastened for our well-being. All of that is said in Isaiah 53. And because Jesus suffered these things, we esteemed him to be smitten and afflicted by God. In other words, Jesus became in our eyes a leper. Now I thought I was original with that thought which is always dangerous to think that you have an original thought. But I was actually very encouraged, not long ago, a couple years ago or so, when I was thumbing through a book that I'd picked up years ago and never read. And it is a book called When Temptation Strikes by Larry Dixon. And I don't know why he put this in the book. I didn't never finish reading it all. But early on in the book, the first chapter, he talks about how the Jewish rabbinical expectation was that the Messiah would be a leper. Now, I've been saying that for years, that the lowest rung of society, as I talked about last Sunday with Naaman, was to have been a leper. You were an outcast. You were despised. No one wanted anything to do with you. And that is exactly what how Jesus is described in Isaiah 53. And even though multitudes of people followed him during his earthly ministry, at the end they all turned against him. And he said, no one stands with me. And his own disciples fled away from him. So this author, Larry Dixon, he writes, and I just want to read this because I think it's helpful. Jewish Jewish legend spoke of the Messiah being a leper. And one, Rabbi Joshua ben Levi, asked Elijah how the Messiah will be recognized. Understand, these are just legends. They're not true. Elijah tells him that you will find the Messiah sitting among the lepers, bandaging his leprous sores one at a time. So that is a very old rabbinical tradition that um, the Messiah would have leprosy. Another Jewish legend says that one of the names for the Messiah would be the leper. We read in Sanhedrin 98b, the Messiah, what is his name? The rabbis say, the leper scholar. As it is said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we we did esteem him a leper, smitten of God and afflicted. A third The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, was riding one day with a young student. He stopped his wagon at the hut of an old leper, horribly afflicted by the disease. 
the rabbi climbed down and spent a great deal of time with the poor man. When he returned to the wagon, the puzzled student asked the rabbi who it was that the rabbi had visited. The rabbi replied that in every generation there is a Messiah who will reveal himself if the generation is worthy. The leper he had been meeting with was that Messiah, but the generation was not worthy, so the Messiah would depart. Where did the leper Messiah idea come from? Some Jews charged that Jesus could not have been the Messiah because he defiled himself by touching a leper. But contact with leprosy was a requirement for being the Messiah, an authenticating qualification rather than a disqualification according to Hadavar, a messianic ministry. That ministry goes on to explain that the rabbis struggled with Isaiah 53 for they saw either Messiah's sufferings as leprosy or split the Messiah in two, one a sufferer and one a conqueror. The Hebrew words in Isaiah 53:4, stricken and smitten, are interpreted as referring to a leprous condition. Either word can refer to being stricken with a disease, yet they don't have to be understood in that way, just as our English word stricken may or may not refer to disease. As a leper, he was despised and rejected of men. So also was the Messiah despised and rejected. And still today, there are many who see Jesus as being as repugnant as leprosy and his followers as those who should be isolated and shunned. To the followers of the suffering one, his afflictions described in Isaiah 53 are the agonies of one dying to provide atonement. To the followers, this little baby in a manger, we go, how could anyone hate a baby? Satan did, did everything he could to destroy him from the moment of his birth. And those who are perishing, Paul says, for the word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So I know it's not the baby that people hate, but the Messiah who came to give life is not only the most significant, most important person ever born into human history, he is also the most despised and hated. And the Jewish rabbinical community, at least some of them understood, Isaiah 53 is saying, smitten by God, despised and rejected by men. And they came to the conclusion, maybe the Messiah will have leprosy because that's how he's going to be reviled. We've been going through First and Second Kings, and in Second Kings chapter six and seven is one of the most horrible stories. It's certainly not a Christmas story, and yet it is the context for Christmas. And so I just want to allude to it. I'm not going to go into all the gory detail here because we're at Christmas time. But in chapter six, 
of 2 Kings, there, the city of Samaria is under siege. Terrible siege. Walled city, and the Assyrians have come. I'm sorry, not the Assyrians, the Syrians have come. And they have, have walled in the people of Samaria, and this has gone on for months. Before these sieges would start, it was no surprise to the people in the city. They could see the army coming. So they would bring all their, their livestock into the city, as many as they could bring in, sheep, goats, cattle, everything, horses. They'd bring all the livestock in. They usually would have a well inside the city, so water supply was not a problem. But they knew food was going to become a great problem. These armies weren't dumb. They typically didn't attack a fortified, walled city. They'd just be pointless. It'd be suicide. So they would just surround the city and camp outside for months, sometimes in excess of a year, until all the people inside were literally starving to death. They would be so comfortable on the outside of the camp that it was not unusual for soldiers to write home to their wives and say, why don't you come visit for a while and bring the kids? Because it was just a long camp out. They had nothing to do, bored to tears, just waiting outside until the people inside opened the doors and said, take us. We can't live any longer like this. Things were so bad inside Samaria that they were eating dove dung and donkey heads and paying lots of money for the privilege. And then they began to eat each other. Won't go into the details. But this is the context for Christmas. Why do I say that? Because Deuteronomy 28 tells us exactly what kind of people would do this, eat their own children. And we think, I've never met a person. I have never in my life met a person that would stoop so low as to cannibalize their own children. But the Bible says, oh yes, you have. Read Deuteronomy 28, verses 53 to 57 sometime. Or read the parallel passage in Lamentations 4, verse 10. And in that verse, just one verse, it says, Lamentations 4, 10, describes these women who did this as compassionate women. The Deuteronomy passage goes into much greater detail, and basically it's just saying the last people on earth that you would expect could stoop this low will do it. The best in society, the most educated, the most civilized, the most polite, they will be the ones who do this, which means that the people at the top of the pyramid can be this bad, stoop this low, that means everyone else lower on the pyramid is guilty of the same. And that is the context of Christmas. Jesus stepped into that kind of world to deliver that kind of humanity. Well, how did these people get delivered? The king was so upset by what he heard was going on that he sent a messenger to kill Elisha, who was right there in the, um, in the city of Samaria. And the messenger came banging on the door, and Elisha locked the door and sent the message to the messenger, by this time tomorrow, everything's going to be back to normal. Fine flour is going to be sold for next to nothing. People are going to be baking apple pies again, to paraphrase. And the messenger said, if God were to open windows in heaven, how could this thing be? And Elisha said, well, it's going to be. 
and you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not taste of it. Now word would have spread throughout all the city of Samaria. In that night, as children are sitting around another barren table, arguing over who gets the, the second helping of dove's dung, everybody would have been discussing what they had heard. By tomorrow at this time, salvation comes. And you would have been sitting around with your kids going, how? How? Who is God going to use? Maybe he's going to send another army. Maybe the king has something up his sleeve that we didn't know about. How is God going to do this? Maybe God's just going to, whatever you would have come up with, you would have never believed that God would use what he uses. Four leprous men. I guarantee you, Nobody would have thought our deliverer, our savior, will be the four lepers sitting outside the city gate. But things had gotten so bad for them, and they hadn't heard the message inside the city. They weren't in the city. They're outside looking at each other, their skin and bones, and they're going, why are we sitting here dying? We can't go into the city. And if we go over to the Syrians, they might kill us, but maybe they'll have mercy on us and let us live. So what do we have to lose? And so they got up and they walked out to the camp of the Syrians and to their surprise, they found nobody was there. The fires were still going. The horses were tethered. They had all their cattle there. There was meat on the barbecue. There was clothing and gold and silver in the tents. But everybody was gone. Because God had caused the sound of an invading army. And in the night, as they hear the sound of an invading army, they all ran for their lives. And they literally just left their tents and all their gear behind. Including their livestock, including the meat that was on the spigot, and all their gold and silver. And these four lepers ran through. They were just grabbing everything they could. They were eating the big turkey drumsticks and the big pork loin. Not pork loins. That would not have been kosher. They were eating every, everything they could find, just gorging themselves and hiding the gold and silver and the clothes. And then one of them stopped and said, this is a day of rejoicing. And if we don't make the good news known, something worse will befall us. Well, what's worse than leprosy? But they said, we have got to make this known. And so they went back to the city of Samaria and they shouted up to the walls. I'm looking now at 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 10. So they came and they to the gatekeepers of the city and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of man, only the horses and the donkeys tied and the tents just as they were. I think they must have come with something to convince these people. Big turkey drumstick. Look, where do you think I got this? Great big piece of roast beef. You know, I mean, they had it all with them. Gold, silver, look at my new clothes. Where do you think we got these? And so they ran and told the king. And the king said, it's a trick. And one of the officers said, king, I'm willing to be tricked. <laughs> Just... Let us take a couple of the horses that are left and go check it out. And so the king gave permission. And they came back and said, it's true. We've been delivered. There's nobody in the camp. 
And the next morning, all the people were supposed to file out in an orderly fashion. And the, and the officer who said, if God were to open windows from heaven, it could not be. He was in charge of the orderly <laughs> departure from the city. And they stampeded. And he was crushed in the stampede. So he saw it, as Elisha said, but never tasted of it. Why is this story in the Bible? On the one hand, it is meant to shock us of what we are capable of. The most compassionate, gracious, educated, sophisticated of people. This is what they're capable of. And this is why they need a a Savior. One to deliver them from their sin. Oswald Chambers, I appreciate a couple quotes by him. He has said, there is no criminal who is half so bad in actuality as what we are capable of in potentiality. In another place, he said, we need only hand ourselves over to the redemption that is in Jesus Christ to never experience the terrible possibilities that lie within our hearts. I've memorized those two quotes because I need to remember them. I need to remember them. There is no criminal who is half as bad in actuality as what I am capable of in potentiality. But I need only hand myself over to Jesus Christ and his redemption to never experience the terrible possibilities that lie within my heart. He is a joy to all the world. And the greatest thing that I need to be delivered from, as Acts says, as Peter said in the book of Acts, I need to be delivered from my own wicked ways. And this is why God sent his son. But he uses lepers. And Jesus became a leper. Just as these four men were the last men on the planet that anybody would have ever thought that God would use to bring deliverance for many people in this world, Jesus is the last person on the planet that they think could bring salvation to them. To those who are perishing, Jesus is the foolishness of God. But to those who are being saved, he is the power of God. Now that's half the message. Remember, just as the purposes of Jesus are for the most part our purposes, how God ministers to us through Jesus and having him become the most despised and rejected person in history, he hasn't stopped his ways. And what God the father did with his beloved son in allowing this one that Mary so cherished. And yet she had to hear he will be rejected. Many thoughts will be revealed. Your own heart is going to be pierced through as with a sword. She had to hear it. And what was true of Jesus, how he became the most despised and rejected will be true of his followers. Larry Dixon pointed that out in the quote that I read. When I was in seminary, I got to a point um, where I was not able to pay off my monthly um, loan. I took out a loan 
each semester for my first two years there. Interest rates at that time were 17 to 21%. I was working 30 to 40 hours a week while going to seminary. My car had been stolen my second night on campus. And so I was having to borrow rides, bum rides off other people to get to, to the job. And so as bad as my circumstances were, there was a dorm mate right across the hallway from me whose circumstances were actually worse. He was from another country, actually from Tasmania, Australia. And he couldn't work off campus because he was an international student. So he couldn't make as much per hour as what I could make. And one night, around 10 o'clock or so, he knocked on my door and said, Charlie, why don't we go across the street, take a study break, and walk across the street to McDonald's and get an ice cream cone. Well, I knew what that was about because we poor seminary students living in the dorms, um, you could go across the street in Dallas, from Dallas Seminary to the McDonald's that was there, and you could pay 15 cents for a child's ice cream cone. And I had to say to my friend, I can't do that. And he said, why not? And I said, I can't afford it. 15 cents. I can't afford it. And he goes, I'll buy your ice cream cone. Let's go over and talk. And so we sit there, two grown men, licking our little bitty children's ice cream cones. And he says, tell me what's going on. And because I'm talking to another guy in my circumstances, a leper, he is the last person on the planet that I thought was in a position to help me. And so I just unloaded. And I told him, I said, I'm going to have to drop out of seminary. I just don't have the money to, to, you know, to make this month's payment. I'm far behind on it. He listened, said he'd pray for me. It's what all good Christians say. Later the next day, there was an envelope under my door and it was a cashier's check, and it was for something like $400. Well, I knew where it came from. And so I walked right back over the, across the hallway, knocked on my friend's door, and I said, you can't do this. And he smiled and said, I already did. And I said, I would have never told you about my circumstances if I thought you were going to do this. And he smiled and said, and that's how I know God wanted me to do it. By this time, I'm bawling. Tears are coming down. I'm snot. It, is, it was awful. <laughs> and I said to him, this is your money to go home to Australia. And he said, God will provide for me. And I said, well, God will provide for me. And he smiled and says, I know. He just did. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. God uses the lepers, the least likely people. Nothing has changed. Jesus came into this world to the least deserving. We're awful. We are awful apart from Christ and his grace. And he came into this world, gave himself for us, knowing that he would be viewed as a leper smitten by God, knowing that he would be the most despised, vilified, rejected human in the history of mankind. And he still came. And he's the one 
God uses. But think of these verses, and I'll be done. 1 Corinthians 4, 11 to 13. This is why I say the purposes for Jesus are God's purpose for us. And when Jesus was made a leper, the same will be true for you and me. To this present hour, Paul says, we, the apostles, are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Sound familiar? Sounds like Isaiah 53. God's doing it all over again. We are so thankful that Jesus, as it were, became a leper for you and me. The one who is despised and rejected by this world, we know he is the wisdom of God and the power of God, and he is life itself. He is, in fact, our joy and our hope. There is no one we love more than Jesus. But we should not think that what God allowed his own son to experience is unique to him. He wants to duplicate the purpose of his son's life in you and me. And that includes being despised and rejected by men. So that when God uses us, people are going, are you kidding me? That person, they're the ones. I didn't think they had anything to offer. Christians are the most valuable people living on earth at any given time. And yet in every generation, the world says the least valuable. And the world does not begin to understand what's being offered to them through those who know Jesus. This is God's way. So when we look at this nativity scene, when we celebrate the birth of Christ, it's my prayer that we celebrate the fullness, the fullness of Jesus and recognize that what he did and what he became is what he wants to do and become in each one of us. And we will be the people that will be the ones that God uses to truly set captives free. But we won't be viewed as the ones who are likely to accomplish that. How many public schools think that they would be better off if they had Christians on campus? How many secular universities? How many, whether it's local authority or upper authority, government authorities, how many of them think we need more Christians? That's not the way the world thinks. So we will be despised and rejected, just as Jesus was. But we will also be the source that God uses to bring life and peace and deliverance to those who are seeking him. Merry Christmas. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your ways. They're not our ways, God. But your ways are good. And they are always without regret. So we thank you for Jesus, all that he is, King of kings, 
Lord of Lords. The one that we bow before and also stand in his presence. Both are true. But the one who is despised and rejected of men. I pray, God, that we would be so caught up in your love for us and all that you have accomplished for us in Jesus that we can willfully, willingly, God, accept the rejection of this world because there is one who loves us and that we love because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. I pray that we would increasingly, God, embrace your purpose for us as reflected in Christ and all that that means. In Jesus' name, amen.